from Luminary and Built It Productions, it's Wisdom from the Top. Stories of crisis, failure, turnaround, and triumph from some of the greatest leaders in the world. I'm Guy Raz, and on the show today, the story of Shelley Archambault, Silicon Valley trailblazer who became one of the highest-ranking black women at IBM. Why should people apologize for being ambitious? And frankly, a lot of women, we are raised to believe that's what we need to do. If we're ambitious, then we should apologize for it because it's not what's expected. And that's crazy. Absolutely crazy. Shelley Archambault on how to take intelligent risks, set goals, and be resilient in order to create your own success. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. When Shelley Archambault started college in 1980, she'd already decided that one day she'd become a CEO of a major U.S. company. That year, 1980, in all of corporate America, only two women led large companies, Catherine Graham of The Washington Post and Marion Sandler of Golden West Financial Corporation. And not a single Fortune 500 CEO was black. Shelley would go on to break barriers throughout her career. The first black woman to lead a division of IBM overseas, head of e-commerce at Blockbuster, and eventually CEO of major tech companies Zaplet and Metricstream. Shelley writes about her story and her approach to leadership in her new book. It's called Unapologetically Ambitious. And in it, she argues the importance of taking risks and putting yourself out there. Much of her philosophy comes from her upbringing. Shelley was the oldest of four kids. Her dad, Lester, worked his way up from fixing typewriters at IBM to a management position. She describes her mom, Mara, as the family CEO. Mom took child rearing and being a mother as her profession. She considered that her job. And dad was the one, you know, went to work, supported all of us. He was the one who did all of the projects around the house, whether it was refinishing the basement, whether it was, you know, tilling the yard to create a garden, whether it was the painting. He was really Mr. Fix-It. And as the eldest, I was always drafted to help with the projects. And how about your mom? Mom was a stay-at-home mom. Mom worked in retail before she got married. And once she got married and had children right away, then she became a stay-at-home mom. And she was also the volunteer leader of the family. So mom was a leader in church. She was a Girl Scout leader. She was on the PTA. You know, whenever we moved, mom immediately got us involved, but she also got herself involved. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it was 
to keep close to the things that we were doing to make sure to the extent that she could, you know, that she was looking out after us and protecting us. You write in your book very movingly about some of the things your mom did um, for you when you were a child. You describe how oftentimes you were the only black family um, in in new environments. Um, And when you were a kid, you described moving to the the suburbs of L.A. and and frequently being harassed um, by other kids. And and your mom, you know, did everything she could to to protect you, joining the PTA, as you mentioned, um, getting involved in your classroom. Um, At one point, going to the principal and, and, and essentially forcing him to, to, to punish students who actually physically um, assaulted you. Right, right. It was, it was a really challenging times, and you have to roll your clock back a little bit because this was the 60s that I was in elementary mm-hmm. school, and for as many people that wanted civil rights, you had just as many that didn't. And living in an area of California, in the Orange County area, there were just a lot of people that didn't think that I belonged. And not just kids, you know, adults. Adults would yell and say horrible things to me. Kids would do things to me, you know. And as a child, you come home and you say, you know, Mom, this happened, that happened. Somebody Mm. pushed me, I got tripped or didn't treat me right or whatever it was. It's not fair, right? It's not fair that this happened. And mom's response was almost always the same. You know, she'd look at me and she'd say, Shelly, life's not fair. And it's like, what? I mean, as a kid, life is supposed to be fair, right? You get a lollipop, I get a lollipop, right? You get a turn, I get a turn. It's all about fairness. But she was always very clear, life's not fair. Wow. So her point was, life's not fair. So what are you going to do about it? Got to learn how to find your way anyway was really the the message. And, you know, that combined with the other key message, which, because people treated me terribly. I mean, as you said, you know, verbally, physically. And she'd say, you know, Shelly, you can't control what people say to you. And you can't control what people do to you. But you can control how you respond. So do not let them win. You can't control the other stuff, but you can control how you respond. Um... And honestly, those two messages, probably more so than anything else, life's not fair, and I can control how I respond, became my touchstones, if you will, for how I've approached my life. Hmm. Throughout the book, you mentioned very specific teachers that you remember who helped you. One in particular... I thought was interesting. You talked about a guidance counselor you had who recognized leadership in you. And at a certain point in a meeting said, maybe you should become a CEO one day. You were a high school student when this guidance counselor said this to you. (laughs) Yes, I was so fortunate. You know, you have those obligatory junior year high school conversations with the guidance counselor. You're going to go to college. Yes, I'm going to college. What do you want to do when you graduate? And frankly, I had no idea. I mean, my parents were all about get good grades so you can go to a good college so you can get a good job. And then you were done. So, all right, that's what I was doing. And so when she said, well, what kind of job? I was like, I don't know. I, I just want to be able to keep the thermostat at 72 degrees, go out to eat restaurants and, and travel. Those were things that I couldn't do mm-hmm. growing up. And so she was like, well, what do you like to do? And I said, oh, that's easy, clubs. You know, I'm in everything. American Field Service, National Honor Society, French Club. I'm even a Girl Scout, but don't, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> and she said, okay, well, you know, clubs are like business. You pull people together, get things done. And I was like, oh, well, I like leading clubs. And she's like, well, then you probably like leading businesses. And when I mm. looked up, the people who lead businesses were called CEOs. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go become a CEO. <laughs> I was that naive and audacious. I had no idea what that actually meant. <laughs> Um, how how was your family's financial situation? Was it were you sort of solidly middle class? We were, I would call it lower middle class. Money mm-hmm. was always always tight. You know, Dad got paid twice a month, and when he got paid, Mom gave all of us an envelope. And when I say all of us, I got an allowance. My siblings got an allowance, and Daddy got an allowance. We all got an envelope, and that's all we had to spend for two weeks. And she had what was left over to spend on the groceries, the bills, et cetera, because she paid all those things. And I will tell you, going through those two weeks, there were times where mom would come 
to us, like to me, to borrow from my allowance or from my mm. job. Because once you put aside whatever we were saving, you didn't touch it. You just didn't touch it. You did without. You know, we went grocery shopping twice a month, period. Yeah. And, you know, we waited until the next grocery trip to get whatever it is that we needed after dad was paid again. So money was very tight. Mom made all of our clothes because it was cheaper to buy fabric than it was to buy ready-made clothes. Um, so I didn't consider us to be poor. Money was just very tight. And we were definitely in a, in a harder position than many of the people around me. What do you attribute your discipline as a as a kid to? I mean, you your family moved around a lot, and so there that could have gone in a totally different direction, right? You, there are stories of kids who were moved around so much that they felt like their childhood was so unstable that it it didn't give them the foundation that they needed. But in your case, there was clearly a discipline. You clearly had this ambition to to do big things. Um, where do you think that came from? You know, I think it came from the fact that my parents always, you know, told us, I always believed that you can do anything you want. Anything that you are willing to work for and make the choices and trade-offs for. And I, I believed it. <laughs> I just believed it. That's what, that's what we were taught. And in many respects, it's what I saw. Money was always tight. And then in, I'm in high school, and mom comes home and announces she's buying a horse. And it's like, what? What? We, we can afford a horse? I'm walking around in clothes that mom made because I can't go buy them. And what? We can afford a horse? It's like, wait a minute. And it turns out, you know, it's part of the savings that we never touched. Mom was saving all those years for a horse because that was her dream. And part of the reason why she spent every night at the sewing machine was because she was making the trade-off. She could sock money away every year to buy a horse. Now, it wasn't a real fancy horse. It wasn't, but it was a horse and that was her dream. So her point was you can have anything you want if you're willing to work for it make the choices and the trade-offs necessary for it. You went on to study at um, the University of Pennsylvania at Wharton Business. Um, and was it in your, your head when you got there that one day I will become a CEO? I mean, at that early phase in your life, were you already thinking, that's my ambition? I was. I was. It's really funny because I got, to, uh, that's why I went to Wharton. I went to Wharton. Matter of fact, it was the only school I applied to. I'd done the research. I'm a big believer in research. That's how you help improve your odds. But I'd done the research, and the top business school for undergrad was Wharton undergrad. So literally, I applied, filled everything out, et cetera. And at the bottom of my application, I wrote, please take me. This is the only school I'm applying to. It's the only place I want to go. I want to be a CEO. Literally. I wrote that at the bottom of my application. Now, I had good grades because in my family, that's, that was the key. You get good grades, yeah. you can go to good school. So, but it was, uh, <laughs> but it was definitely why I wanted to go to Wharton because it was the top business school. And I figured that's what I needed. I needed that credential to help me with improving my odds. You know, it's, it's interesting because it's very rare when an 18 year old knows what they want to do. And, and, and I think in, in every interview I, I, I've done, I ask people, did you know what you want to do in, when you got to college? And 99% and of the time, people say, no, I didn't. I just kind of stumbled into something. What did being a CEO mean to you? Do you remember what that meant to you when you were 18, 19 years old? What it really was for me, Guy, it was a goal. Because, I mean, did I really know what that meant? I really didn't, right? I really didn't. But it gave me a goal and something to aspire to that sounded like what I would like to do. And therefore, I could now put focus and energy toward it because I've always been goal-oriented. In order to improve the odds, in order to do anything, it's always about, okay, so what do you want? All right, if this is what I want, what do I need to do to actually make it happen? Right? How can I improve the odds? How can I work? And that's just the way I went about everything. So for a career, I just needed a goal. 
And this became my goal. While you were in college, you you met the man who would become your husband. I did. Yeah. I'd gotten a part-time job starting my sophomore year in IBM, where I worked like 20 hours a week at IBM during the during the school year, and I worked for them full-time over the summers. And it was at IBM that I met <laughs> that I met Scotty. And uh, and it was it was funny because he asked me, you know, long story short, but the first time he asked me if I'd go out, I was like, no. <laughs> No, I'm not going out with you. <laughs> and he was definitely persistent. And he turned out to be the, the perfect, the perfect life partner for me. And he was older. He was, I mean, I think he, he was, was 18 years older than I was. 18 years older. Exactly. Wow. Which is why I told him, I said, no, I'm not going out with you. <laughs> You're too old for me. <laughs> yeah. What did your family, what did your family think of him when you first started, started to date him? Uh, my mother's comment was... A little bit of silence. And then she said, well, Shelly, I always thought you'd find somebody older than you were, but I was thinking it'd be like 10 years. 18? Wow. <laughs> that, was, that was her response. Daddy didn't say anything, but that was also dad. Dad was not a man of many words. And so, you know, what I told him, he said, okay. <laughs> That's all he said. <laughs> But um, but anyway, so no, this wasn't this wasn't the quote ideal picture that my parents had in mind. Neither my siblings, but as they got to know him, they uh, they all indeed fell in love with him just like I did. After you graduated, you you became pregnant with your first child pretty quickly, and also got a job with IBM. I mean, you were you were really ambitious and hard driving and and a mom um and i from what i i read in your book um one of the first things that you and scotty decided was how to co-parent that it wouldn't just fall on one parent to look after the kids correct correct we definitely talked about it you know and this goes back to trying to improve your odds i wanted to have a long-term marriage i wanted a long-term life partner and therefore we talked about just about everything before we even got engaged because I wasn't going to marry somebody that didn't have the same vision for the future that that I did. Otherwise, if I did, then the odds were going to be lower that we'd actually have a long-term relationship and a long-term marriage. I wanted children right away and I wanted my career. I wanted to be a CEO. So therefore, we were going to have to agree to spend a significant amount of our money yeah. on childcare. So we had to talk about that up front because it would impact the other decisions that we'd make about where we live, the cars we drove, right? All, all those things. And we talked about just about everything as it relates to that. So I, you know, I had a life plan. And I wanted to make sure that, that Scotty was was uh, was in in for that plan. <laughs> you would spend, I think, about fifteen years um, at IBM after you graduated from from Wharton, and um, you you had an ambition inside of you um, to one day be the CEO. That you sort of saw that as a as a goal um, from the beginning. Was that was that right? I mean, were you sort of working towards that idea? Absolutely. Once I decided I wanted to be a CEO, when I got to college, I heard somewhere along the way that, hey, if you pick an industry that's growing, companies in growing industries are also growing. And companies that are growing never have enough resources. So if you're good at what you do, you can move farther faster. So I said, okay, I looked around. This is the early 80s. Tech was going like gangbusters and looked really interesting. Yeah. And I said, great, I'll do tech. And the company that was the number one in tech at the time was IBM. So I said, great, I'll join IBM and I'll become CEO. <laughs> uh, literally, that was, that was my whole decision. So that's what I did. So I got a part-time job at IBM. When I graduated from Wharton, I took a job in sales, selling computers. And my friends thought I was absolutely nuts. You don't graduate from Wharton and then go sell computers. 
Okay, no, you graduate from Wharton and you become, you know, an international financial analyst, you become an investment banker, you go be a a product manager at P&G, right? All these sexy jobs and I'm going to go sell computers. What? Uh, That was nuts. But the reason I took that job was I'd done the research and every single CEO at IBM started out in sales. So I figured that has to be the path to power. And therefore, that's what I did. It's such an important insight because I would say the vast majority of of the CEOs and founders I've interviewed started in sales. Um, We just, you know, one that comes to mind is Mark King, the CEO of Taco Bell, started out as a sales rep for TaylorMade Golf and eventually became a CEO. Sales is where so many CEOs begin because it's how they understand the product. Exactly. And you know what's interesting? It's not even just the product guy. I, to this day, to this very day, I use more of the skill sets that I built as a salesperson than any other job I've had. Because you learn. You learn that a no is not a no. You learn how to ask for what you need or what you want. You learn how to create win-win situations. You learn how to figure out, you know, power structures, right, in organizations. There's just so much that you learn in order to be successful in sales that you use no matter what kind of job, role, etc. you have. So I think everyone should spend at least a couple years selling something. When we come back in a moment, Shelley Archambault's lessons from the tech world during the dot-com boom and bust. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So just as Shelley's career was taking off, and as she was starting a family with Scotty, she began to feel, well, a little overwhelmed. As a young mom in her late 20s, the weight of working and pursuing, you know, your ambitions, but also losing, you know, all of your free time because you were working and and, and looking after your kids, um, you start to suffer from depression. Um, what do you remember about that time? Oh, boy, that was uh, that was a hard time. So here I was, you're right, I was in my late 20s. 
I had two children already. I was promoted a few times. I was now also just starting my first nonprofit board seat. And from the outside in, boy, Shelly has it going on. Everything yeah, great. exactly, yeah. right? Perfect, amazing. Absolutely. Yeah, right. But on the inside, I was so tired. And I was finding it hard getting out of bed. And normally, you know, I just bounce out of bed. I mean, I have plenty hmm. of self-energy the whole bit. And I'm finding that hard. And I'm just not finding a lot of joy in all the things around me, you know. And I'm just like, what is wrong with me? If this is what I have to feel like in order to pursue my, quote, goals and everything I want, then I'm not sure it's it's worth it, right? I'm thinking, oh, my goodness. Well, thank goodness. I, I went to go see a psychologist because I'm like, something is wrong with me. And sure enough, something was wrong with me. I was suffering from depression. I didn't know what depression was. And what I learned after several sessions with the psychologist is I was giving 100% of myself away. I was giving myself to my children and my husband and the job and the community and the nonprofit and the, you know, anybody wanted or needed something. And I did it. I would do it. But I wasn't doing anything to refill my own tank. You know, today we talk about it as self-care. I wasn't doing anything for that. And what I learned is I have to. So the good news is I was able to figure out what do I need for self-care to hold, to feel good about myself. And I learned I just need three things. And for everybody, it's different. But what I needed was I needed to eat three meals a day. And I know that sounds a bit ridiculous. You think, gosh, everybody eats three meals a day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. No, we don't. I'm not counting a granola bar and a cup of coffee as a meal. So I learned that I needed to eat three meals a day. I needed to exercise regularly. And I needed to have at least two social interactions, meaning social get-togethers, something, a week. And if I did those things then I'd be okay. And I made those non-negotiable. And the good news is I never had that happen again. So I'm glad I learned the lesson early. But if things feel too hard, then they probably are. Go get some help. One of the opportunities that you had at IBM and that you pursued was to work in Japan, um, to move the whole family out there. Um, and I think you were there for about a year in Japan. Is that right? Yeah, I was there for a little over a year. My family was there for less than a year because of the timing of schools and things. School, but yes. Right. Mm-hmm. And while you were there, you were recruited uh, by Blockbuster, the yes. video rental company, to go work work for them. And you ended up coming back to the U.S. and joining them, right? That's correct. So did you move to Dallas where they were headquartered? I did. I did. It was probably the riskiest thing I had ever done in my career to date. And they wanted you to run their e-commerce division, which what did that mean in 1999? Well, in 1999, it meant standing up a new division, right? Hmm. This was when everything .com and the web was really just happening. Everything was kind of on fire. And Blockbuster wanted to create a Blockbuster.com that would, in the short term, be really a marketing channel, you know, be able to sell tchotchkes, you know, highlights about movies, things like that. But long term, they saw it as being the vehicle through which online movies and things like that would be delivered. So this was very much an, I'll call it an internal startup to a larger company, because Blockbuster was a behemoth back then. It was giant. It was the 800-pound gorilla. And there are famous stories about... um, early days of Netflix and Blockbuster. And one of the stories is that Netflix was on the ropes. I mean, they were really not uh, performing. And I think there was one point where Reed Hastings went to Dallas and met with corporate leaders at, at Blockbuster. And he literally said, you know, they he, he asked if they wanted to buy the company and, and they said the price. And he said $50 million. And they laughed him out of the room. Um, you had met Reed Hastings when you were at Blockbuster, right? Oh yeah, I was I was there for that whole that whole wow. process. Um, Reed and I met each other because we're now in the same industry. We're attending conferences, etc. So we meet each other, and uh, yes, he came out to Blockbuster and pitched, "Hey, you can buy us. We can take Blockbuster.com, the brand, and Netflix technology, and go conquer the world." Because at Blockbuster, 
I was trying to build technology, right? And yeah. he was trying to figure out how do you get this technology into being able to establish relationships with the content providers and the movie theaters, right? All those things. So match made in heaven. So what did you think? I mean, did you think it was a good idea to, to, to bring them on and, and to collaborate with them? Listen, I did. I back to I'm trying to build technology and they've got the technology. So this would hmm. streamline, right, and speed up significantly this overall process. And my boss was kind of like, mm, if it ever turns into anything, then we'll buy them, right? Wow. I mean, it was, ooh. So that's when I decided, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. <laughs> I've moved my whole family from Japan to Dallas, and this isn't going to work out. And now I'm in Dallas, which was a little short-sighted for somebody in technology, because back in the late 90s, there wasn't much going on technology-wise in Dallas. So it was obvious that for me to continue my career, I needed to get to Silicon Valley, where technology was absolutely taking off, lots of growth, etc. So I ended up making the really hard decision, along with my husband, that was, all right, I'm going to commute to Silicon Valley to hmm. be able to take the job I want to take, and I'm going to leave my family back in Dallas. Wow. Because my daughter was just starting her high school career, and after moving her all around growing up, promise that, okay, when you get to high school, it's your choice. I may still have to move, but it's your choice. And she said she wanted to stay and finish out her high school career in Dallas. Mm -hmm. So you went to work for a company called North Point Communications um, as an executive, and you were commuting. You were going back and forth from Dallas to San Francisco, flying back and forth, what, every every week? Yeah, every week. Exactly right. It wow. was, uh, yes, <laughs> it was not, mm -hmm. not the easiest thing in the world to do for sure. You did that for three years, right? I did it for three years before we finally moved the family to Silicon Valley after my daughter graduated from high school. Wow. That job at North Point eventually led to another job at a company called LoudCloud that, that was, I think, founded by Ben Horowitz. That's correct. Ben Horowitz and Mark Andreessen founded LoudCloud. And I ended up at LoudCloud because Andy Radcliffe, who was a partner at Benchmark Capital, was an investor in North Point and had seen what I had done and said, Shelly, I want you over at LoudCloud because hmm. he was an investor there too. So he introduced me to Ben and Mark and interviewed and they hired me originally to be the chief marketing officer. And then after a couple months, I also became the chief marketing officer and the EVP of sales. Hmm. You were, I think, around 40 years old. Uh, 2002, you were offered a CEO position. It would be your first time CEO position at a company called Zaplet. This was a company in crisis. It was a distressed company. It was like on the brink of collapse and bankruptcy. And they offered you the CEO position to turn it around. And um, Ben Horowitz discouraged you from taking the job. He said, don't do it. It's going to be disaster. Yes, he absolutely did tell me not to take the job. <laughs> a lot of people told me not to take the job. Yeah, right? I mean, a, a company that was a sinking ship. Why did you take it? Why did you want the job? <laughs> exactly. Um, I mean, why wouldn't anybody want to take a job where the company is running out of money? They haven't sold anything new to a new customer in like a year. And right. All, why wouldn't you take that kind of job? Right. Um, well, the reason I took it is... I was different from Ben and from a lot of people giving me advice. I'm a black female without an engineering degree in Silicon Valley going after a CEO job. I'm not from the Valley. I don't have those networks. I knew I was not going to get an A play. I wasn't going to get a company that was doing well. You have to understand the timing. This is shortly after the bubble burst. So there are literally hundreds of CEOs whose companies have gone out of business that are looking for jobs. So these are people that have been CEOs, that are from the Valley, that have the networks. I'm not from the Valley. I'm still commuting. And therefore, I said, fine, I know I'm not going to get an A play. So let me take a fixer-upper. I have done fix-it stuff my whole career. And I figured if I went after one of those roles, first of all, there'd be fewer people competing for them. And I also 
felt that I'd have a chance to truly get the job. Now, was I confident that I'd be able to turn everything around? I mean, you don't know until you get in there. But at the same time, I was going to do things to try to mitigate the risk. So even the job at what became Metricstream, it was called Zaplet at the time, before I actually took it, I had Insigree, who was the CTO at LoudCloud, actually go and spend a couple days at uh, he was so sweet. He went and spent a couple days, some time for me at Zaplet and actually did a technology review. <laughs> I said, listen, I'm not a tech person, so I need to know that the technology they've built is solid, that I can actually use this for something versus having to go rebuild the tech. Yeah. And he came back and said, yes, this is a solid platform. It does what it says, blah, 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 blah. And I said, OK, fine. So I mitigated that risk. So as long as I've got technology that can be built on, then the rest of it, the go-to-market, trying to figure out a problem to solve, all that, those are things that I can do. And I picked a company that also was invested in by top-tier venture mm. firms. You know, Kleiner Perkins was a lead in investor. They were driving the search for the CEO, again, because I figured, well, they have networks and reach, right, and support to be able to help me through all this. And at worst case, if it doesn't turn out, at least they will have seen me in action firsthand, and that should help me with getting something next, because a lot of people didn't think the company was going to make it. So I really felt from an odd standpoint, it was a rational decision. I love how you did all that risk mitigation, because um, I should mention that that the software that they made was like risk mitigation software, basically. It was. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, actually, it's funny. It wasn't at the time. At the time, what they had built was a platform that allowed IT departments to build applications on top of it quickly and easily. Right. That's what they were doing. We evolved it into risk management software. So that was the problem that I've that we decided to solve was compliance management and risk management. Right. And so we actually tailored and evolved the software to address those issues. So you get to Zaplet, which eventually becomes Metricstream after a merger, and you become the CEO. What was your playbook for turning the company around? I mean, presumably it was distressed because it was a victim of the dot-com bubble that had burst, and it was losing all of its customers because presumably these customers were going bankrupt or were no longer around. <laughs> How did you begin to to turn it around? What was the plan that you put in place? So my first step in the playbook is one, stop the bleeding. So we went in, cut costs, right? Cut people, did the whole bit to try to reduce the burn of the company. Step two was to find a problem to solve that the technology that the company had could be used for. So for me, that was going out and talking to as many smart people as possible to try to figure out, okay, what problem is out there that's not being solved adequately or that we could figure out how to solve better than anybody else? Because fundamentally, a company has to be solving problems. And that's when I came across the whole compliance and risk. I'll never forget, my very first person who mentioned this area to me was Roger McNamee. Roger McNamee, the, the renowned tech investor and, and I think founder of Elevation Capital. Yes. Roger said, you know, Shelley, this whole compliance arena, I don't know what to do about it, but it's, it's a hard, sticky area. There's just more and more rules and regulations coming every day and companies are really struggling with this. You know, did the research around it. And he's like, you know what? He's absolutely right. This is a mess and there aren't great solutions out there. So we built a solution to help address compliance and risk management. So now that we had a problem to solve, then it was getting the entire company focused on evolving our technology to do that. We needed people who could actually sell it. We need people who could implement the software. Then it was getting the right team in place to go after it and keeping people highly, highly incented and motivated and inspired because it's hard turning around the company. Yeah. So you turned it around and you become a compliance technology company um, and things are going great and the family comes back and you're all living in California and then lightning strikes again, <laughs> yes. the financial crisis <laughs> of 2008. Oh. And all of a sudden you're leading a company once again in crisis and in free fall. So true. And, and let me just paint the picture for you, Guy. So here it is early 2008 and the 
software analysts who are really important to software companies. These are the Gartners of the world, the Foresters of the world. They're the ones that basically put out all the reports to say, these are the best companies in each of the different segments. Uh, and these are the reports that all of the IT heads read to figure out who should they use to solve their problems. Well, in early 2008, Gartner announces, oh, there is a brand new category of software. It's called governance, risk, and compliance. And MetricStream is a leader. It's like, yes, you've hit the jackpot, right? They are now telling the world that we are one of the top companies out there to solve this problem. So companies should call us. And they did. Our phone started ringing. We are getting opportunities. Talk to the board. This is a pipeline's looking great. We decide we're going to invest in sales and marketing as well as implementation people to go after this new um, surge, right? In demand. And the wind is at our back. And the plan is we'll raise money in 2009 based upon the trajectory of the growth, right? We had this beautiful mm-hmm. mapped out plan and we start executing. We're hiring people, we're closing deals, the pipeline's great, ba, 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 ba. And then boom. Q4 of 2008 happens and the financial crisis hits and everything just stops, just stops. And it's like, are you kidding me? We finally make it. We've turned around this company. We're finally a leader. Everything's great. And what? So suddenly all these wonderful investments we made turned out to be terrible investments because we'd spent our money. Our plan was we're going to raise money in 2009 on the growth trajectory. So we limp into 2009 with very little cash. We've had to cut members of our staff and companies are closing all around us. Wow. And it's like, all right, what are we going to do? Are we going to fold after all this or are we going to fight? And it was pulling in the leadership team, you know, looking at things really, really hard and saying, all right, what are we going to do? But we believed and I believed that we had found a new market and this market was real. And if anything, the financial crisis should actually spur companies to want to do something about risk management and compliance. So if we can just hang in there and fight through this, We should be able to build a great company. The key was fighting through it. And literally, it's pulling the leadership team together. You know, people agreed to take pay cuts. I had to go home and tell my husband, hey, babe, um, how would you feel if I decided not to pay myself for like a year? Yeah. That's what we did. And we literally fought through this. And it it was the hardest thing I've ever been through because every time payroll came up, It was like, are we going to be able to make payroll? And, you know, for several days, it'd be nail biting. And sometimes we were late a day, right? Or Mm. two. Um, But we always managed to get it done. But it was the most stressful time in my life. How did you keep it together? I mean, when you were at the office with your team, did you hide your anxiety? Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. I, as the leader, I have found that people look to you to decide how they should feel. Hmm. And they watch everything. You know, they look to see your body language, right? Your facial expressions. Are you in a good mood? Are you not in a good mood, right? What's happening? They watch you so closely so that if you walk in and show your emotions every day, you're going to whipsaw your team. They're going to be excited one day and then depressed the next day and anxious one day. I mean, you you take the whole company through these highs and lows that you're going through. And that's totally unfair, right? You're the leader. I mean, you've, you've set up the environment, good or bad. And what I always tried to remember was something that I was told once, which is things are never as bad as they appear. They're also never as good as they appear. So I would just keep telling myself, Things are not as bad as they appear, right? (laughs) Um, And try to hold that whole steady calm. And if you ask people that have worked for me, I think one of the things that they will tell you is that I am steady. And so when I'm steady and calm, they feel calm. Even though facing a lot of challenges, a lot of hard, they look at me, it's like, well, okay, Shelly's okay, so we're going to be okay. So I think that's actually an important role to play is to 
be emotionally steady so that you can be there for others. And people don't execute their best when they are anxious or when they are afraid or when they are nervous. I needed everybody to execute as well as they could possibly execute. So what was it that turned it around? Was it just the sheer will of hanging on and and getting through the crisis and, and coming out the other end when the economy began to recover? Actually, it was a couple things. One was the fact that we were right. This market was a real market. And so despite the challenges, people started saying, wait, customers are still buying. They still need our software and what we're doing. So the macro of what people saw was positive. We actually, without any money during 2009, we actually doubled our sales. Wow. Oh yeah, it was it was crazy, but that was important. So now people are seeing externally validation. Okay, so if we can just hang on. And then yes, it was absolutely hanging on because a lot of companies that have great products and good, you know, business they're trying to develop, they they die because they run out of money. So it was really about hanging on um and making sure that we could just survive this period to come out at the other end. And then the third area was, let me tell you, it was the team. It was the resilience and strength and support of the team. Had an incredible team. And it was trying to keep people rallied and people positive and keeping them looking at the future, the horizon versus the challenge that they were facing right at that moment. When we come back in just a moment, Shelley Archambault transitions to phase two of her working life. And this time, the challenges are more personal than professional. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to Wisdom from the Top. Generative AI is not a one-size-fits-all. If you're powering a customer chat experience, you need instant speed at low cost. If you're doing complex R&D or advanced analysis, you need frontier intelligence. The Claude 3 model family from Anthropic offers a model for every task and budget. Claude 3 Opus sets new industry benchmarks for intelligence. Sonnet strikes the perfect balance between speed and skill. And Haiku is the fastest and most cost-effective model on the market. Join the thousands of enterprises who trust Anthropic to power their AI solutions. Visit anthropic.com slash Claude today. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify in store. Shopify POS is everything you need to sell in person. From payments to inventory, Shopify unites your sales into one commerce platform. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash retail23. Shopify.com slash retail23. Hey, welcome back to Wisdom from the Top. I'm Guy Raz. So just as Shelley was emerging from the darkest moment in her stewardship at MetricStream... And just as the company was showing signs of hitting its stride again, Shelley was hit with a major blow. In 2010, um, Scotty was diagnosed with cancer, um, and it was aggressive. Yes, unfortunately, he was diagnosed with what we learned was a terminal cancer. 
So it wasn't even just cancer that you can fight, but this was one that uh, we, we were told how it ended. And the prognosis for a man um, with the cancer that he had and where he was, was on average, you know, would live, you know, maybe four to five years. Um, so it was, it was devastating news for me and, and my family. You wanted to, to step down. Um, and to to be with him at home. And he would not let you do that. He refused to let you step down from your position as CEO. Yeah, it was what happened was when he got the cancer, you know, after, okay, getting our heads around this and everything, we agreed together that we were going to live life first Hmm. and fight cancer second. That we were not going to suddenly have cancer be our life. And so that meant initially that, yes, I kept working. We kept doing all the things we we normally do. We were living life first. Mm. But then he entered into a really bad period. And frankly, I, I thought this was it. I mean, he had lost. My husband was a former athlete, six foot two, you know, 210 pounds, right? So he's a solid guy. And he had lost 50 pounds. Wow. Uh, he, yeah, he was like skin and bones. He could barely walk. And back and forth to the doctors several times a week. He has to have support and he can't, at this point, his immune system's totally compromised. So he's not supposed to eat anything that wasn't cooked at home because in restaurants, there's more contaminants that can happen, et cetera. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute. I'm running this company. I can't. I can't do all this. I, I'm. I'm. It's just too much. Hmm. And we have the conversation, and I say, "Babe, I, you know, I, I've got to step down. You know, now's the time. We need to focus on you." And he said to me, and I'll never forget, because again, skin and bones. He's weak. It's not. It's not good. And he looks at me and he says, "Shelley, if you quit now, then our whole life is about cancer. And if our whole life's about cancer, then what the hell am I fighting for?" And it was just like, oh my God. Um, so I couldn't quit. So what do I do? Well, I reached out to my village for help. And I will tell you, I was so fortunate in that my village stepped in. I literally reached out to my family and friends and said, I will buy plane tickets, but I need help. I need somebody to come and be with us. And literally had a calendar and I had relatives and friends flying in for a week, for three days, for whatever, and staying with us because all of our families were on the East Coast. So between Thanksgiving and spring of the next year, like end of March, I had somebody with us the entire time. And then I had friends locally who would literally cook meals at home because they couldn't just buy stuff um, and drop off food. And it was amazing how everybody came to rally. And thank God, Scotty rallied. And he fought cancer for another five years. It's amazing. Um, I mean, you were running a, a major tech company and also managing, project managing all the people coming in and out of your life. Um It's just amazing. I had, I don't, I can't even begin to imagine how you did that. Oh, it was, it was hard. But let me tell you, I have amazing friends and family. Just amazing. Um, I tell people all the time, there's no way I would have achieved all that I have achieved without the village that I have around me. And that particular part of my life really brought forward front and center just how important that village was. And I set up a Yahoo group calendar for my family so everybody could see who was here when and what was going on. I mean, leverage technology to help create transparency and visibility and all of Scotty's doctor's appointments. And he was getting chemotherapy. I mean, literally, he was at the back and forth the hospital, you know, typically four times, four times a week. And it was it was a lot. Absolutely a lot. And I'm not going to say there weren't any balls dropped or things like that. There, there absolutely were from time to time. But overall, we came through it very well. You know, he lived for nine years instead of five. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, you eventually did, um, in, in the sort of the last two years of his life, did step down to focus um, 
on on Scotty and, and on writing a book, which you eventually published, Unapologetically Ambitious. And he was able to read the manuscript of the book um, before he passed away. And um, that book really, it's a story of your life, but also of the your sort of approach to leadership and and work and even the title unapologetically ambitious which um which i love i mean i think i think if, if i'm i'm channeling this correctly you you use that title because probably you encountered particularly women leaders who are a, maybe sort of apologetic about feeling ambitious and and that nobody should apologize for for feeling that way that's exactly right guy you know, um, it's interesting. Several times during my career, you know, I'd hear, oh, you're ambitious. And it's hmm. not, it wasn't meant as a compliment, hmm. right? Which is ridiculous. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. Because to me, all ambition is, is there means, it just means that there's something in the future that you are aspiring to, that you are trying to create, achieve, right, to impact, and you're working toward it with intention. Well, Everybody should have something in the future that they are working towards. You would never raise your children and say, oh, study hard, get involved, show leadership, right? All these things, but oh, 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 don't, don't be ambitious, right? We would never tell, do that. So why, why should people apologize for being ambitious? And frankly, a lot of women, we're, we're raised to believe that's what we need to do. If we're ambitious, so we should apologize for it because it's not what's expected. And that's crazy, absolutely crazy. So, yes, the title Unapologetically Ambitious means just that. Everyone believes deserves to be ambitious. I, I guess it's not surprising because we're, we hear so much more about this. And I, and I encounter this with so many leaders I interview. And it's, it's interesting. The more successful the person is, the more accolades they've received, the more recognition they've received, the more likely it is that they have some form of imposter syndrome, even among well-known people. It's it's remarkable. And you talk about how you sort of dealt with that throughout your career, feeling like you weren't good enough or you weren't you didn't, you didn't belong in that leadership role. Tell me what, where you think that comes from. You know, it's it's interesting because you're right. I actually did some research when I was writing the book because I've suffered from imposter syndrome my whole life. I still do from time to time, which is really ridiculous, okay? So it's like, why is this? And that's when I learned just what you said. It turns out that actually most people suffer from imposter syndrome at some point or another. People who, yes, are ambitious and working towards things more than others, but women more so than men. And then, frankly, women of color like the most. Hmm. So... You know, if I look back, I think my imposter syndrome just came from the fact that from a very young age, it was just clear to me, hey, nobody cares much about me. They don't think I deserve to be there. They don't think I'm very smart or very capable. I mean, all that was just drummed into me. So it shouldn't be surprising that then when I find myself in rooms that I'd never been in before, in jobs, right, that I'd never seen before, all that, that I would feel that, oh my God, I don't really, I don't really belong. I, I'm not wait till they figure out I'm not as smart as they think I am, right? All those things that are imposter syndrome, it happened over and over and over again. So I had to learn how to work through it because otherwise it was just going to stop me, stop me from raising my hand, stop me from taking the job, stop me from joining the group or what have you. So I had to learn how to work through imposter syndrome. And that's my big message to everybody is this whole imposter syndrome thing, it's just not real. Yeah. If everybody suffers from it, it's in the air. It's not personal. And so if it's in the air, it's kind of like television, right? I mean, it just comes through the airwaves. And what do we do when the TV's scary? Remind ourselves, oh, this isn't real, right? Scary movies on, things are happening. Oh, this isn't real. And when we get too scared, when we get too scared, we turn it off. That imposter syndrome thing that you're hearing in your ear, that voice that's telling you you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, and you don't belong, and all those things— Turn it off. It is not real. Just remember, the only time you feel it is when other people are offering you something new, a new job, a new opportunity, joining a new group. Well, they wouldn't offer it to you if they didn't believe in you. So if you can't believe in yourself, believe them. And if that doesn't work, then I tell people to fake it. Fake yeah, it. Act yeah. like you're confident. Act yeah. like you know what you're doing until you do. Because if you think about it, you always figure it out eventually. Yeah. 
So give yourself the benefit of the doubt. You're going to figure it out. One of the things that you that you write about and that you experienced in, throughout your career is risk-taking. That It doesn't mean jumping out of a plane without a parachute on, it, 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 you know, because I think as you t- described, you always, you did the research. You did the hard work that enabled you to feel confident taking the risks. T- talk a little bit about risk and, and your sort of approach to risk. Yes. I believe that risk and opportunity are two sides of the same coin. If you don't take the risks, you just aren't going to get the opportunities. So whenever I'm facing a risk, I just look at it and say, okay, so what's the likely outcome here? And then what's the best that could happen? And then I ask myself, what's the worst that can happen? And can I live with that? And one of the things that I learned to do, Guy, was to write it down. Because when you write down what's the worst that can happen and you actually look at it, it becomes tangible. And once it's tangible, you're like, okay, well, if that happened, I I could live with that. But if you don't actually make it tangible, then it's like this boogeyman in your brain that's stopping you from doing anything. So I've learned that there's actually a lot that I could live with. If it's not going to bankrupt me, (laughs) if it's not going to impair my health or damage my family or, you know, whatever, then I, I can live with it. And then I'd figure out, okay, what are steps that I can take to actually mitigate this risk? So I always ask myself, what's the, what's the likely? What's the best? What's the worst? Can I live with it? And if I can, I take the risk and work on mitigating the downside. I know that you're involved on several boards. You sit on, on the boards of, of a few Fortune 500 companies, and you're involved in, in philanthropic work. But you are still young. I mean, at your age, many people are becoming first-time CEOs. Is there a world where you would go back to running a company one day? You know, it's funny. Never say never. But the answer is right now, I'm focused on what I refer to as phase two. Hmm. And phase two for me is all about impact and inspiration. One of the reasons why I wrote Unapologetically Ambitious was to be able to share, hey, what worked, what didn't, give people really tangible things they can go do tomorrow to try to improve their odds of getting what they want. Because there are just way too many people in our country and in our world that don't get the opportunity to contribute to even 50 or 60% of their capability. And it's not because they're not smart. And it's not because they're not willing to work hard. A lot of it's because they don't necessarily know the ropes. They don't know how to improve their odds. And I wanted to be able to share those things to help those people. So the kinds of things I'm working on today, and by the way, I'm still working. I'm just not working for one entity, (laughs) but I'm still out there working and engaged. But could there be a phase three for me or a phase four? Well, I numbered it because likely (laughs) I expect to live a long time and I'll always be contributing in some way. So we'll, so we'll see. As, as you know, Shelley, there's been so much discussion around diversity at the at the highest levels um, of corporate America, right? And, you know, you can count on a little more than one hand the number of, of black women CEOs at, at Fortune 500 companies, Rosalind Brewer and, uh, you know, Ursula Burns. The Sunda. Right, yep, the Sunda, Sunda right? exactly. And mm-hmm. I wonder, I mean, do you, you know, you're in this position where you, you know, you were a black CEO of a, of a major tech company but at the same time, you know, part of me ha- has to think that it's unfair to expect you to go out and, I don't know, be representative of something. I, that that it's, it's a lot to ask somebody to, to do that. And I wonder how you think about that, you know, given that because of who you are, you do represent something. But at the same time, maybe you just, you know, you don't always want to have to, to, to be that person. You're right. Right? Are there times when you don't want to have to be that person? The answer is yes. But at the same time, I personally feel very fortunate that I was able to do the things I've been able to do. And I just feel compelled to be out there, to be visible, to let others know that, hey, if I could do it, you could do it. 
But what people don't realize is how much more work, effort, and time it takes for these women, for anybody who's one of very, very few, to actually not only do their job, but frankly, also be um, accessible and visible in their communities, in the industry, etc. It takes time because now suddenly you're wanted. You're wanted to be visible. You're wanted to speak. You're wanted to participate, right? All, all those things that are outside of just doing the job that's day to day that other people don't have to do. Now, did I look at it as a burden? As I said, I didn't because other people way before me carried that burden too. And if they hadn't, I wouldn't have had this opportunity. So I never saw it as a burden. I just saw it as, you know what? It's an additional responsibility. And if I can in any way, shape or form, make it easier or make it possible for others to be able to achieve the things that they want to achieve, then I'm absolutely going to do it. Shelly, thank you so much for joining us. Um, it's great, great having you on the show. Um, are there any anything that you wanted to add or that we didn't mention that you is important for you that we talk about? You know, one of the messages that I really like to offer is I think it's really important that people take ownership for their careers. You know, so many people don't. They get the education they need. They get the experiences they need. And then they go to work and they wait for people to tell them what they can do. And we just don't treat other aspects of our life like that. And my big message is own your career. You you own it. Nobody else. Not your boss, not your company, not your mentor. You do. Decide what you want to do, what you want to learn, what experiences you want to have. And then figure out a way to go make that happen. And then it's just a matter of intentionally executing the plan. So I believe that anybody can achieve what they want to achieve if they're willing to actually take ownership for their overall career path. That's Shelley Archambeau. Shelley stepped down as CEO of Metric Stream in 2018. She currently sits on several boards, including Verizon and Nordstrom. Shelley's book, Unapologetically Ambitious, Take Risks, Break Barriers, and Create Success on Your Own Terms, was released in 2020. Also, Shelley's career has been so notable that it's now a case study at Harvard Business School called Becoming a CEO. Hey, thanks for listening to the show this week. The music for this episode was composed and performed by Drop Electric. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Wisdom from the Top from Luminary and Built It Productions. 